we live in a specific place at a specific time in history and that that matters. And we, we confess in this season during Advent that it matters that God, the invisible God, that we didn't know what God looked like, we didn't know what God was like in any way, shape, or form, that the, the image of the invisible God became incarnate, became flesh and blood, and made his dwelling among us, and that that is good news for our salvation, that finally now God has disclosed God's self to us, and when we need to know what God looks like, we look at Jesus, this is what God looks like. Now, one of the aspects of that good news that, that, that God became about 2,000 years ago, a flesh and blood person named Jesus, Yeshua, uh, a Palestinian Jew living in, in Nazareth uh, about 2,000 years ago, that, that God looks like Jesus. Well, one of the, that, now that, that is good news because that makes him relatable. But one of the, one of the things that, uh, has become unfortunate in church tradition is that the ways in which the fact that God became a man, a male, makes God seem to look more like men than like women and makes God look unrelatable to women slightly over 50% of our human species. And that, is, is something that has uh, deeply shaped uh, Christian spirituality. That is something that has deeply shaped my own spirituality. This is what I was raised with. God is a man. And I would hear time and time again, God is a man. God looks like a man because God is more like a man than like a woman. And so the fact that God became... Now, of course... When we, when we say that God is like a father, this is, this is a metaphor. This is not like God is a spirit. God is not any, does not have any sex because God is not a human person until, of course, as we confess as Christians, God did become a human person. Uh, God became Jesus. And so does that mean then that, that men look more like God than women do? And that has basically been uh, the lie that completely misses the point of the way that Jesus embodied the divine, uh, and, and we're going to get into some of that. So this is all a part of my series that is exploring the hard things that nobody wants to talk about. So today we're going to talk about... Uh, I, was, I was going to provocatively title, but I already let some of the cat out of the bag. I was going to say that, that my, my sermon to title today was God is not a woman, because of course we were trained that way. Of course God is also not a man. <laughs> um, God is not, all, all of these things are metaphors. All of these things are, God is also not a rock. God is not a strong tower. God is not uh, water. God is not many things that we say God is. But we use these metaphors to approach the inapproachable because this is the only way we can relate to things that we have a reference to. So God is kind of like a father, also really not like a father, but also kind of like a father. This is the way, this is the way divine metaphors work. Um, I have the wrong page here. Let's uh, find this. All right. So uh, the other thing that makes this difficult to talk about is uh, I am clearly not a woman. And and one of the interesting things uh, that 
when we talk about issues related to spirituality in women, we, we've, we at least, I think, mostly have the good sense that we should be listening to women's voices on this subject instead of uh, yet another white dude opining on what is important and what matters. Um, I have actually increasingly had the idea that I am the least trustworthy person to represent uh, the gospel and Jesus because the gospels and Jesus were in a, in a context of being oppressed and being on the underside of history and being under the boot heel of history and being at the margins. And so myself, as a person of incredible privilege, colors that in a way where I generally tend to miss the entire point. Um, one, one, of the other, one of the other interesting things about me as a man speaking about uh, women and spirituality and Jesus is like so I was, I was talking to my wife about this uh, a few nights ago as I was preparing and you know getting some feedback from her you know being like hey I'm not just having my own ideas and not being just this dumb chuckle-headed man with all of his own ideas that he doesn't bother to ask anybody about and then I realize it's like oh there is this subtle thing going on here where it's almost still a reinforcing of this kind of patriarchy that, that we live and breathe in where we say that all that women have to say anything about is talking about their experience being women and really basically nothing else, that that's the only place we're going to carve out. And it's good that we're doing at least that, but, but women, of course, should be speaking with men on all things that matter. So today, as a man, I'm going to be speaking about how, uh, how, how Jesus did not, um, did not just come to make God look like a man. And I, and I think that's important that all of our voices should be saying things like this, not just women's voices. Um, so that's, that's a big, long prologue. So when we talk about... Um, when we talk about particularly Jesus being uh, the incarnation of God and being a man, um, and, and, and the way that we think as men and women relating to God, this is, this is largely a matter now of imagination, because we, um, we, are, we are using our imagination to, to approach God, to relate to God. Um, and, you know, in most of our... One of the things that, that really drives us home is whenever we re- refer to God, we tend to use the masculine pronoun he, him. It was in a few of the, the lyrics to some of the song we were, songs we were singing earlier. God is always referred to as a he or a him. Even when we're talking not necessarily about Jesus, just about God, whereas God does not have a sex. Uh, and but, but we assign a gender to God all the time. And so... This is because long, long before Jesus came on the scene, uh, there, there's been a thing that's been happening in history. It's called patriarchy. Now, you hear patriarchy get tossed around a lot these days. It's a negative thing. It's a bad thing. But we don't necessarily understand a couple of things about it. Uh, well, for, firstly, because it becomes very taboo. It becomes nobody wants to be associated with anything like that. Or maybe some people want to bring it back. I mean, certainly that's been the... <laughs> the experience probably of many of us in, in Christian contexts has been a notion that we should bring back male headship and back when men were men and women were women, they knew their place, this kind of garbage. Uh, this, this, is, this is what I was raised with. 
Perhaps it's what many of us were raised with. It's still pretty broadly dominant in the church today, and it's still really not too far under the surface of of the culture that we're in, uh, as has been exposed by the seeming avalanche of like sexual scandals that have been happening in, in, in popular culture, all of these men exercising, dominating power over women. Has, it's always about power, it's not about sex. And that's what patriarchy is about. Patriarchy is about power. Now, patriarchy is rooted in a system in, in the ancient world where there's something called a paterfamilias. And so at this point, I am going to uh, start reading some passages from this very tiny but very excellent book called Women and the Word by a, by a feminist theologian. Her name is Sandra M. Schneiders. And she is wonderful. And so she has a really good definition of patriarchy here that I'm just going to read. Um, Patriarchy is a social system based on the patria potestas, which is the absolute and unaccountable power over wives and concubines, children, servants, slaves, animals, and real property enjoyed by the pater familias, which is the father who is the head of the family. Um who is the head of the family, the tribe, or the clan. To the father of the family belonged, as property, all members of the extended household and all goods. In classical Greek and Roman societies, this authority of ownership extended even to the power of life and death. Children, especially girls, were often deemed valueless to the father and left to die. Insubordinate wives or slaves could be sold or killed. While sons, when they became adults, were emancipated and became patriarchs in their own right, daughters were passed, with or without their consent, from the control of the father to that of a husband. In other words, from one patriarch to another. Um, And then she says a little more about how that relates to God later. Um... So, yeah, so this is the imagination in which the church has gone to great lengths to encourage in men and women. God is presented as a great patriarch whose enormous household is the whole world. The patriarchal father God enjoys absolute and unaccountable power over nature and persons. This God recognizes in his male children a certain likeness to himself and places them in charge of his female children. However, in relationship to the divine patriarch himself, all of his children are feminine because in relation to him, they are powerless and dependent. So this is the context that Jesus came into. Patriarchy was nothing anybody would have ever even had the thought of questioning in this context. It was just, you know, it's, it's like one fish turns to another fish, says, hey, nice water today. The other fish says, what's water? Because they're swimming in it, they just don't know. It's just as close as their skin. And this would have been the water of the ancient world where Jesus came in and among us is patriarchy. Men rule and over many other, over women always, over the, also the men of their household until they marry and start their own household. This, this, is, this is the way things work. So it's, it's about power, it's kind of this like pyramid structure. You've got the one man at the top. Right, And then you would have a king who is the man over all of those other patriarchs who is then legitimized by God who is the big patriarch. So it's this big system that says that this is the way that God is. God is the patriarch of patriarchs. And this, uh, and so that like, legitimizes and justifies um, 
the existence of male patriarchs in the world. And so in this context, uh, the patriarchal values are, you know, authority, power, control, uh, you know, you would even just say virtuousness, which is like self-referential. Uh, but, but this very, you know, this, this show of strength and, you know, authority and power, that, that, is, that is the virtue of being a man in this context. These are the masculine virtues. Now, I say masculine because uh, one of the things we're dealing with here, there's both sex and gender. Sex is if you are born with male or female genitalia, uh, secondary sexual characteristics, are you born a man or a woman? Uh, and that doesn't always 100% of the time work out either, as we're learning. Um, that, that doesn't apply to everyone. But then, masculine versus feminine is a little more, is a little more, like, just cultural. It's more, like, what virtues, what characteristics do we assign to be masculine? These powerful, dominating, kind of, I guess, notions versus feminine, which is, I guess, maybe softer, more relational, more caring, warmer, these kinds of, uh, feminine virtues. Um, so one of the interesting, um, one of the interesting things that we see in, in Jesus is Jesus does a horrible job of being a man in his context and in his time. He doesn't embody any of the masculine virtues whatsoever in his life, in his teachings, in his example. Um, it, and it's really easy to miss all this stuff because we live, it, because we as a church have done a horrible job of seeing most of this stuff. The amount of times that, that, that Jesus portrays God, not, not in this paterfamilias masculine powerful way, but rather in, in a loving, caring, relational, more feminine way. Um, so one of the, one of the places you can see this, uh, some of the, some of the most powerful parables that, that, that Jesus uh, teaches, there's, there's this trilogy, this lost trilogy. There is the shepherd and the lost sheep. So the kingdom of God is like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. One of them is lost. Ninety-nine of them are cool, but the shepherd is so in love with his sheep that he goes, searches, 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 finds, finds the lost sheep. This doesn't actually make sense. Brings that lost sheep home, endangering the other ninety-nine who are okay. So the logic of ownership and control, this doesn't actually make any sense. In, 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 a, in, a, in a masculine sense, in, in, a, in a patriarchy, it doesn't make any sense because you are risking all that you own for the sake of just the one lost sheep. You're, the, the, the math doesn't add up. You might lose everything. It's all about possession and ownership. But this, this shepherd is after the lost sheep. And then again, there's the, there's the much more uh, powerful uh, parable of the prodigal son which should actually be called the parable of the loving father, in my opinion, uh, where, where again, the, the son, the son goes to his father and says, Father, give me your inheritance so that I may have it already. Now, again, we don't live and exist within that world. And I mean, this is this. I, I've heard enough sermons like you've probably heard this too. The. When, when the son says to his father in this patriarchal society, give me my share of the inheritance, he is effectively saying to his father, I wish you were dead. 
why, why aren't you dead already so I can have your stuff? <laughs> the, the stuff that I would get when you die. And so this would have been, in a patriarchal society, basically that son would have... The, the, the patriarch would have probably just killed him. Because, like, you're disrespecting my authority, you're usurping my, like, God-given authority. I had to wait, you're, you're going to wait too. <laughs> I had to wait for my father to die, you're going to wait for me to die too. Except you're not going to wait, because I'm probably just going to kill you now for your, like, disrespect. That would have been, that would have been, like, being, embodying a masculine virtue in, in, uh, in, in that time. But instead, the father sacrifices of himself maintain, and, and, and gives of himself of, of all that he has, half of all that he has to his son, so his, there's the other son. But so then the son goes and screws it all up, loses everything, comes crawling back, thinks maybe, maybe I'll live as one of my father's servants. Comes crawling back, thinks that maybe, maybe, like my father treats his servants pretty well, maybe he'll treat me well as a servant. Um, I, I got nothing left. Comes running back, and, and the, the 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 line, and while while he was a long way off, his father saw him and came running towards him, embraced him. That doesn't look anything like a man in the ancient world. So when Jesus is describing God as a father, it's a father that looks completely unlike any father that anybody would say is a good father in the patriarchal world that, that he is in. This, this, and so that's two of the three. We have we have two uh, father. We have two male images of God: the shepherd and and the forgiving father. Um, and then there, and then there's a third one that again Jesus says also the kingdom of God is like a woman who has lost a coin and will not rest until she finds it. She turns her whole house over looking for it, looking for for, for the one lost coin. And so in, at this place, he is explicitly saying God is like a woman. Now again, this is nothing that we really tend to think about. We talk about the shepherd and the sheep. We talk about especially the, the, the parable of the prodigal son where God is a father. We like glom onto that really easily. But in this trilogy, there's two men and one woman and nobody and even the men are not in, as, as images of God in these parables. Even the men are not masculine in the context. They are actually demonstrating more feminine virtues. So that's like a... And there is... A lot more once you start like digging into Jesus' teachings and and the way that he um, again he embodies like pacifism and nonviolence, turning the other cheek, loving your enemies. This did not make any sense for how a man should behave in his context. This was not masculine. Uh, Jesus, when 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 addressing who he, the the God who he calls his father. He tells other people to address God as Father, but he himself uses the, the Aramaic term of endearment, Abba. And it's a sign of how patriarchal we still are, that in the Bible it is usually still just Abba instead of Daddy. A term of endearment, of closeness, of relational. Because the notion of Jesus calling God the Father Daddy just sets us a little on edge. 
doesn't feel right. It doesn't underpin the things the way that we were taught. It doesn't make God the patriarch of patriarchs the way that we were taught. So, so coming back, so that's some of Jesus' teaching, but also in, in, in what he embodied, literally in his body as a man, um, right? Again, we, we've been taught so often that Jesus, God became a man because God is most like a man. Well, this, this act, and, and, and men are better than women, is, is the, the, the underlying logic. Well, of course, this flies in the face of the way that Jesus actually taught in his ministry, where, where he teaches that the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, the last will be first and the first will be last, that Jesus, in terms of his life and ministry, was never, never interested in gaining the approval of the powerful, of becoming a powerful person himself. Everyone always wanted him to essentially be uh, staging an insurrection, uh, a coup against the, the, the Romans. The Romans, we've got to get rid of the Romans. That's what a Messiah is going to come for. He's going to lead us to great battles and victories. And, and they kept making him, tr- turn, trying to turn him into that, and he refused. Because the Messiah was more of the suffering servant than, than the conquering hero. Um, that, that God didn't look like that, that our expectations were wrong, our expectations of what God should look like, that God should look like a patriarch, those expectations were wrong. So, so in that whole context, why then, why then would God become incarnate, take on flesh as a man? Why would that happen? And, this is, this is some of the most um, fun, fun theology I've read in a while. And, and uh, Sandra Schneider has some wonderful things to say on this topic. She says, God's pattern is to choose the least suitable, the least powerful, the most shameful of human material as the locus for divine activity in order to make clear that salvation is truly God's. It is clear that God did not become human as a man either because God is male or because maleness is divine. But we must still ask why, if female and male humanity are equally fitting material for the incarnation, male humanity was chosen. I would like to suggest that, in a certain sense, Jesus had to be a male in order to reveal effectively the true nature of God and of humanity. First, Jesus revealed by his preaching and his life the inadequacy of the masculine definition of humanity. And, and, and just to unpack that, again, the masculine definition of humanity, as we have used even until recently, we've used he and him and man as generic words for all of humanity. That through, throughout, throughout most of history, men have been considered the real humanity and females the defective cut-rate version of humanity. That's been most of the history of the way we've viewed things. But, but, so Jesus revealed the inadequacy of that. 
He repudiated competition, the exercise of course of power, all forms of domination and control of others, aggression and violence. He espoused meekness and humility of heart, peacemaking, nonviolence, silent patience in the face of injustice and suffering, recourse to personal prayer in times of difficulty, purity of heart and a nurturing concern for all, especially the sick, the oppressed, and sinners, women and children. In other words, Jesus delegitimize the stereotypically male virtues and the typically masculine approach to reality. He validated the stereotypically female virtues and lived a distinctly feminine lifestyle. Had Jesus been a woman, there would have been nothing revelatory about this way of life. Women were expected to live and behave that way. But because he was a man, Jesus' choice of lifestyle stood out as a contradiction of the current definition of masculinity and thus of humanity as defined by the dominant male culture. But Jesus, choosing to live out a repudiation of the male value system, was recognized by friends and foes alike as possessing and arresting authority. So effective was his stereotypically feminine approach that he was perceived as a threat to both state and church. Thus, Jesus undermined the accepted definition of humanity and challenged both men and women to conversion. He challenged men to abandon both their assumption of human superiority and the grounds on which they base that claim. And he challenged women to value the traits which they had been taught to despise in themselves because they were despised by men. It's really good stuff. Like... And, and we, we missed it, and we miss it time and time again. And one of the reasons we miss it is because things have, with this message, things have gotten somewhat better for women. They're not as horrible. Women are generally, women aren't legally property anymore. Men sure treat them that way a lot. Still, <laughs> That's, uh, that hasn't quite gone away. Uh, we got a long, long way to go, but we, I guess, have come a long way. This has had an effect. It took about 2,000 years. Um, but this notion that, that, that Jesus came as a man to show that God is not a man by living not in any way that anyone in his context would have res- recognized as masculine, that sounds more like the God who is always overturning all of our assumptions, all of our sh- all of our certainties, all of our like all of our knowledge, ultimately that God is the one who will, you know, legitimize and make basically the status quo. God looks like whatever God tends remarkably to look like whatever power structure we have in our society. Whereas Jesus continually overturned all of the forms of authority and power in his society. He, he, he lived very differently. And, and it, it was much more remarkable than anything could have been had he become incarnated as a female. It would have been ignored. But as a man, it was revolutionary. It was insane. Uh, she, she has one more thing to say here that I'll read. Uh, she also says, um, says, Jesus definitively undermined patriarchy in a way that was open only to a male in Jesus' society. 
Although it is still oppressively active in the church, patriarchy's days are numbered because Jesus destroyed its claim to be divinely instituted and sanctioned. As we have already seen, Jesus subverted patriarchy by his presentation of God as a non-patriarchal father. But Jesus' personal choice of celibacy was an equally eloquent statement. In Jesus' society, a man entered into the male-privileged class by marrying and thereby becoming the head of a family. Jesus renounced participation in patriarchal privilege. He did not take possession of a woman, and thus he remained free to relate to all women as equals. He did not have children, so he felt no need to dominate them and so teach them their place. Only as a man could Jesus repudiate patriarchy by his own choice not to participate in it. And so, when we celebrate that the Word became flesh, and, and one, of, one of the other interesting things as you read through the Gospel of John, it talks about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was, was with God in the beginning. All things were created by Him. This language, even there, this language is appropriated particularly from, from the wisdom tradition, where wisdom is personified as a woman, particularly in uh, the Proverbs. There was, a, there was a strong tradition of holy wisdom, Sophia, as, as a female aspect of God. And, and basically that, all of that wisdom language, like capital W, personified wisdom as a female, that basically got moved into Logos, word language, in the Gospels. And so even there, you were saying that Jesus became the embodiment of what for them was the strongest uh, feminine language. Because again, it says, by wisdom, everything was created. Wisdom was with God and created the world in the beginning. So the Gospel of John is saying a similar thing, but instead calling it Logos, the word, the logic of God. And so, so even, even Christ incarnate, was the, the incarnation in a male body of what for the Jews was a very strongly feminine imagery about God. So even that's quite interesting. And so when the word became flesh, when wisdom, she became a man. Well, I mean, I, I heartily say that um, it is for... <laughs> It is one of the best things that men can do, which is to learn about their humanity from women. And in Jesus, we kind of have started to do that because he he didn't he didn't embody masculinity. He didn't embody maleness in any way that anybody would have had any kind of grid for. And because we don't have that grid, we've kind of missed the point throughout most of church history. But we're, I, think, I think there's hope for us. And that's what the thing that we confess at Advent is that there is always hope. There is always something new of God's life breaking into the world. Uh, today, not in the form of, not in the form of a 2,000-year-old uh, Jewish Palestinian man, but, but rather the Holy Spirit among us and that we gathered together by the Spirit, become a new kind of family, uh, a new kind of family that is not dominated by a patriarch, but where we submit to one another in reverence, where, where later Paul would talk about this logic that in Christ, 
There is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, all of these things that have caused us to put one over the other to say that I cannot have anything to do with you, that I am more like God than you are. All of these things have been obliterated in Christ who embodied this this like merging of the masculine and the feminine, that, that we all have something to take from that and that it's not just for male spirituality or female spirituality, that, 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 that Christ incarnate, we a new kind of humanity is formed from his body. And, and, and literally, there's even a lot of those female imagery. Uh, we'll, we'll just read a little piece here from the end where, um, where she says, we must learn to speak about God in the feminine. We must learn to image God in female metaphors. We must learn to present the religious experience of women as autonomously valid. The therapy of the imagination is an affair of language in the broad sense of the term, and, is, and it is crucial that we cease to trivialize this issue and begin the long process of conversion from the idolatry of maleness toward the worship of the true God in spirit and in truth. Now that's good stuff. That's actually not even what I wanted to read. Let me find it. <laughs> it is good. Ah. Oh, here it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Jesus, so, in an invitation into the mysterious spiritual femininity of Jesus, who gives birth to his church from his own open side, because in, in, in the gospel account, they, they pierce his side and out comes blood and water. This is the birth of the new humanity. And he feeds his disciples from his own body, thus mystically revealing the special godlikeness that women enjoy through their capacity to give life. And so that's what we do in the Eucharist, in communion, is we partake of the nourishment of the body of God. And so that is... <laughs> that is that is not very masculine. That is that is that is a more feminine virtue, and that is something that we do as we gather together. We feast on God, take in His life. His, this is my body. This is my blood, poured out for you. And in this, we become a new kind of family, a new kind of creation, a new kind of humanity, one that is not ruled by a patriarch on earth or in heaven but rather is the new humanity of, of people who are free to love one another, freed to be equals, freed of dominating one another. So we will partake of him and we will partake of each other. And in so doing, we are a sign of the kingdom where there, are, there, is, no, there is no one in charge, there is no ruler from on high, but rather a community of equals gathered together in his name. His name. <laughs> yeah, her name, God's name. It's, it's hard to break these habits, but together we can do it. So let us, uh, let us partake of the table together. Yes? I find this whole topic totally fascinating. It's, uh, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, sorry, I should have asked for questions. As, uh, we'll do this still. 
as a kid, I think yeah. like many of us, I grew up in a very traditional environment, very traditional perspective on Christian faith, very male-dominated. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting, like the symbols are extremely relevant within our faith. And, and um, you know, we think about the word father, the word father is referenced so many times in the Bible. Mm -hmm. and, and that, unfortunately, the word father can be not a positive thing for some of us. Um, the notion of um, father and God, um, but also mother and God, are so relevant because as a child, um, the love you receive from a father, and let's just assume that some of us, while we might not have had positive experiences with father, may have a father figure, say a grandfather or an uncle, that would be representative of that. Mm -hmm. Likewise, with motherhood, um, we've been affected enormously by these these figures, these individuals that had the capacity to love in such a uniquely relevant way as a mother or a father. And to rob ourselves of that motherly love within our faith, is, mm -hmm. it seems really unfortunate. Yeah. And as a child, when I was growing up, as a Mennonite, I came across this psalm, or this, I'm sorry, this song from a United Church songbook. Mm -hmm. It was um, number 403. And I remember the controversy mm -hmm. this, this um, created within um, individuals that I knew in the Mennonite circle because it was a song, song about the Holy Spirit in a feminine form. Mm -hmm. And it talks about how you know, a feminine form of God breathed life into the world, mm -hmm. um, breathed life into this child. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and we're talking about that today. And in fact, Christmas time, we're talking about the birth of Christ, which yeah. was a result of the feminine Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's wonderful to celebrate that and, you know, understand that God is both motherly and fatherly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also just beyond those things, they're, they're metaphors that break down. Because God is kind of like a father, kind of like a mother, but also not. But also, yeah, like it's, and so it's when we, when we, when we like get to attach to these metaphors and we start to think that they are, that the metaphor is the thing rather than a, a, like a, it's like, it's like a pointer. It's like in this direction, but it's still ultimately a metaphor. It still leaves so much less said. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, because when we when we take our metaphors and we make kind of literalize them, make them like really literal, um, we think that that I guess makes things safer. I don't know why we do it. I'd be interested to know. I think that's what's fascinating about um, you just touched a little bit on uh, wisdom mm -hmm. here. That's that's what's the metaphor. Yeah. Uh, uh, the character of wisdom is both found in mother figure or father figure, mm -hmm. and it's this. It's just this, this, this unity that brings you to a better understanding and mm -hmm. connection with your faith in God. Mm -hmm. And um, who God I find two things. First off, acknowledging that the masculine traits of our society are almost ungodly. Most of them. Well, <laughs> I find it incredibly challenging, but also yeah. incredibly like, ah, that makes a little bit more sense. And then second of all, you make a point, and we've all grown up, and we, I think we all kind of understand the concept of like God bore Himself into this world in the lowest of the lows, mm -hmm. you know, in a in a 
bar, you know, to a to a single woman kind of idea, and then just going further to acknowledge like and a man. Yeah. You know, yeah, like, the lowest of the low. <laughs> right. And I've never yeah. I've never really thought about it that way. But then I, I think about it now to acknowledge almost like he was able to live out um, a feminine lifestyle. Yeah. Was, or, no, Hebrew. Hebrew was neutral. Right? Greek was neutral. Uh, both, both, were, both are feminine uh, is ter- terms of gendered language, yeah. But then when mm-hmm. the Bible finally made its way into a, a language that commoners could read, suddenly mm-hmm. it became a masculine word. Because mm-hmm. they have guys that just spear in German. Yeah. Everybody started reading the Bible in the Western world in German from the Gutenberg Press. Mm-hmm. And then we don't realize it, but we become accustomed to thinking yeah. that it's suddenly masculine because it's a yeah. masculine word. Yeah. Because God is a man. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, this we... is the last idea here for me uh, <laughs> about what you spoke before in regards to belonging and, mm-hmm. and you know, the paradigm that exists about the, the white, the dominating white male mm-hmm. and the other cultures that are here and together that's bringing these other aspects. Gender, mm-hmm. also yeah. confusion, paradigm that we set up, mm-hmm. and, and realizing that yeah. we're all we're all equals. I remember those messages and these, these compliments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember just the, the like cognitive dissonance of like growing up in the church and hearing all of the stuff about how men should rule over women and then seeing that I don't know how you got that from this Jesus I don't know how that how did you get to this from that it's, it was so confusing and still is what are your thoughts on Paul that Paul speaks I mean that's what I've been mm-hmm. brought up to believe yep. Paul brought this up mm-hmm. and kind of presented it to the church and then yep. so the so in terms of Paul just a couple quick things uh, when I when I spoke, the, the the great crescendo of Galatians is that in Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. That we have been united, and God has like took down all these things that used to keep us divided. That's from Paul. So that doesn't mean that Paul lived out his own logic very well and very perfectly. But he also, in his letters, in many cases where he's addressing, like at the beginning of his letters, when he's addressing the leaders of the church he's writing to, there's always women. There's always women in that list. Um, it's possible and probable that 
in uh, the epistle to the Romans that he is uh, accounting Junia as an apostle um, and, and accounting her that equal authority. Now, because of the history of the church, a lot of people believe that that was then turned into a male name throughout subsequent uh, history. So the, there, there's some there's some scandal, there's some drama. Um, and then thirdly, the, 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 the passage that everybody holds up where Paul says, I do not la- allow a woman to speak in a church in First Timothy, that was probably not written by Paul. Uh, uh, in, in the ancient world, um, when, when, when things were written like this, if you wanted to appeal to authority, you would, you would write as though you were somebody else. Now, this wasn't seen as lying. This was seen as, I am writing within this tradition of Paul. So I will write as though I were Paul, even though I am not Paul. It, it's it's a, such a different world from ours. And so it's, mo- it's very unlikely that that letter was even written by Paul. Um, now there's other places where it seems like, you know, Paul, Paul has some trouble relating to his own masculinity and to, to women, certainly. Uh, he, he's, he's got some issues elsewhere. Uh, but, but, but the best of Paul is, is, is all of a piece of this. It, it all, it all, yeah. But patriarchy's been pretty tough, tough nut to crack. Yeah. Yes? I got 99 problems in heaven only the patriarchy. Patriarchy, basically all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> That's it. Done. <laughs>